Okay, witches, it's back. Join us for the third annual So Moot That Con on October 14th and 15th, 2023. Yes, this live virtual conference on living as a witch in today's world will have workshops by some of our most popular guests, rituals with the TWL crew, and a whole mess of raffles, plus a live keynote with Laura K. Hamilton, the New York Times bestselling author of the Anita Blake Vampire series. Other presentations include Phyllis Karat, Anwin Avalon, Diana Rachel, and much, much more. We'll be talking everything from hexing to hoodoo for liberation to the goddess Freya to making magical spaces accessible. Tickets are on sale now at thatwitchlife.com. Prices go up September 29th, so get them fast. Can't make it on that day? Don't worry, everything will be recorded and sent to all registrants after the event. Get your tickets ASAP at thatwitchlife.com and we'll see you October 14th through the 15th. Welcome to this next edition of our Patreon Mostly series, Who's in Bloom? I'm your co-host of the Science Witch Podcast, Angel, and for this episode, I'm going to talk about the lotus flower. Also, as a content warning, I'm also going to talk about how the lotus is related to yoga philosophy, which leads me on a digression about some of the problematic aspects to the modern yoga movement. So if you're not in a place to hear about sexual abuse, cult dynamics, and critiques of the wellness industry, you may want to skip this Who's in Bloom episode. Before we talk about the lotus in regards to yoga, first I need to establish what lotus is and how it is different from a water lily. While they look similar, lotuses belong to the family Nilabumaceae, while water lilies belong to the family Nymphiaceae. The most definitive way to tell them apart is in the way the plant grows. Water lilies tend to float above the surface of the water. Lotuses, on the other hand, submerge their roots in the mud at the bottom of the lake or the pond, while the stems and leaves and flowers emerge from beneath the water. Water lilies have a greater color range than lotuses. Lotuses are generally white or pink, but may also be red or yellow, while water lilies come in a rainbow of white, pink, red, yellow, orange, purple, and even blue hues. The lotus flowers are in the genus Nelumbo, which consists of only two extant species, Nelumbo nasifera, which is native to Asia and includes India, China, and Vietnam, and can be found in parts of Australia as well. And this is also called the sacred lotus because it's the species that has been so revered in Buddhism and Hinduism religious traditions for centuries. Nelumbo ludia is the second living lotus species, which is native to North and Central America. This species is not well known as Nelumba nasifera and doesn't have the same religious significance. It's also sometimes called the yellow lotus, owing to its yellow petals, and the American lotus, for obvious reasons. Lotus are very hardy plants and can survive in stasis as seeds for hundreds if not thousands of years. If conditions are favorable for germination, even if the plant's roots have all been destroyed, the seeds can remain viable and will emerge when conditions are favorable. The lotus's closest living relatives are from the family Proteaceae, another family of hardy plants, which include 
native Banksia, Ahakia, Gravelia, and Macadamia. Lotus leaves are super hydrophobic, meaning they repel water, which causes water droplets to fall on the leaves to pull together. As they gather up dirt and other foreign materials, they roll off the surface, cleaning any of the debris. Culinarily, all parts of the lotus are edible. Lotus root is a popular ingredient in various Asian cuisines and can be eaten raw, cooked, or pickled. It is often used in soups and stir-fries. To quote a recent post on Instagram by the Lansu Chinese Garden here in Portland, the lotus root is edible stem of the lotus flower and can be prepared as a soup, tea, pickled, stir-fried, or even baked to chips. The stem is full of vitamin C, vitamin B, iron, copper, theanamine, and zinc. It provides a good source of protein and dietary fiber. Lotus seeds can be boiled and added to desserts, soups, or even ground to make lotus seed paste, commonly used in sweets like mooncakes and daifuku. Even the petals and the leaves of the lotus are edible. In China, Korea, and Vietnam, lotus tea is a popular beverage that can be made by steeping the flowers or leaves of the lotus flower. Lotus seeds are sometimes used in traditional Chinese medicine. They're said to have a calming effect and be helpful in treating anxiety and insomnia. Lotus flowers can also be used as a natural food coloring. When lotus flowers are dried and ground into a powder, they produce a beautiful pink color that can be used to tint beverages or desserts. Indigenous Australians also consume parts of the lotus plant. The flower produces fruit between January and July, which can then be eaten. Lotus seeds can be ground into a flour-like substance to make damper, a traditional kind of bread eaten around campfires. Even the stems can be eaten, with a taste reportedly similar to celery. The lotus is an important cultural symbol in both Buddhism and Hinduism. In the Buddhist tradition, the lotus flower is associated with the Buddha himself. Just as the lotus flower emerges from the mud, but remains untouched by it, the Buddha rises pure and untouched by the negative aspects of the world and achieves enlightenment. The white lotus flower symbolizes the purity of body, mind, and spirit, while the pink lotus represents the Buddha himself. In Hinduism, lotuses are associated with the Hindu deities Lakshmi, Vishnu. Both are often depicted sitting on a lotus flower throne or holding lotuses in their hands. In Hinduism, and by proxy in yoga tradition, the lotus represents spiritual enlightenment, beauty, fertility, purity, prosperity, and eternity. In the Hindu tantric tradition, lotuses represent the energy centers in the body known as chakras. Each chakra is represented by a lotus with a different number of petals. The first chakra, or the root chakra, located at the base of the spine, is represented by a lotus with four petals while the seventh and final chakra, also called the crown chakra, is located at the top of the head and has a thousand petals. Because of the correspondence with chakra system in yoga practice, the lotus has canonically been associated with yoga, and often the lotus symbol is used by yoga studios all over the world in their marketing and logos. As yoga has become a $105 billion industry globally, with the U.S. yoga industry earning over $9 billion in revenue each year. Yoga and Pilates studio industry alone was valued at $12.82 billion in 2020, according to an economic study on the yoga industry. 
This study also reports that 36 million Americans practice yoga, and that number is only expected to increase as more yoga teachers are certified and the popularity and efficacy of yoga spreads. I happen to be one of those 36 million Americans who practices yoga, and I am aspiring to start teaching classes in my local community this fall. I'm an advocate for the power of yoga to improve overall wellness and quality of life and have even seen firsthand how transformative this ancient technology can be for both my life and that of my husband, who practices it with me on nearly a daily basis. In my time studying and practicing yoga, I have found that the presentation of yoga in American consciousness comes with a lot of baggage that I've been having to reconcile with my vowed dedication and enthusiasm for this form of physical and spiritual practice. The roots of yoga can be traced back thousands of years and are inherently connected to the mythology and liturgy of Hinduism. There's a lot of valid criticism from indigenous Indian yoga practitioners that American yoga strips the practice of the spiritual framework and co-ops this ancient practice for modern American consumption. But also, many of the gurus who brought this practice to the U.S. have a very problematic history and have come to light in recent years thanks in part to the Me Too movement as well as investigative work from industry insiders turned whistleblowers, such as the writers and podcast hosts of the Conspirituality Podcast. I am super excited to announce that I will be hosting Matthew Remsky, one of the co-hosts of the Conspirituality Podcast, on our podcast in an upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. In their book, Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat, the three co-hosts turned authors profile several of the wellness grifters and conspiracy mongers that gained prominence during and after the pandemic and provide a framework from which to understand these fraught, charismatic cultist leaders in a way that is both critical and compassionate. Among the many people profiled in this book includes the leader of Kundalini Yoga movement in the U.S., Guru Jagat, and her strange journey from New Age influencer to conspirituality ship poster and ultimately led to her untimely death. If you are interested in the lurid and strange story of Guru Jagat, I encourage you to check out the episodes on Conspirituality Podcast, which I will link in the show notes of this episode. This particular story hit close to home because prior to the pandemic, I was an avowed follower of Kundalini Yoga, even donning a turban and dressing all in white and receiving a spiritual name from 3HO, Daya Prakash Kar, which I received in an email dated, May the 4th, 2015. I first learned about Kundalini Yoga while I was still living in Phoenix, Arizona. A woman had offered to teach free yoga classes at my apartment complex. She was often too flaky, and I found out that she was in an addiction recovery program that was run by the 3HO organization. But it was at least the introduction I needed into the world of Kundalini that I then sought out with more reliable teachers. For me, finding kundalini was transformative. It was far more challenging in many aspects than what would have been considered hatha yoga, which is usually what is taught in the standard yoga classes in the U.S. Kundalini necessitates a lot of intense and conscious altered breathing techniques and postures, as well as many different chants and mantras. For me, a white AFAB person who had grown up in the Deep South and didn't have access to yoga culture prior to moving to the western part of the U.S., 
It was an opening to a whole new world of consciousness expansion. The most profound and the closest I can say I ever came to experiencing samadhi, or singular consciousness, came to me after performing the same kriya, or sequence of postures in kundalini yoga, for 30 days in a row. On the 30th day, I had an almost moment of consciousness loss akin to a bright, blinding white light in my mind and feeling my ego dissolve. Doing this kriya repeatedly for so long of a time helped me through a very difficult period in my life and deepened my desire to seek out other teachers. I continued to take kundalini yoga classes all throughout 2017 and 2019, going so far as to taking kundalini teacher training. Around that time, I also started going to another yoga class that was far more westernized, but had the added bonus of classes being outdoors at different locations and also being donation-based. And thus I ended up being pulled away from kundalini yoga in favor of yoga and beer classes, which I continue to take today. While kundalini will always hold a very special place for me in many ways because it helped me through such a difficult time, it was more costly to continue and had features that were almost cultish in its practice that yoga and beer didn't. Perhaps I seemed to intuitively sense that what would be later be confirmed in reporting of several investigative reports, and also the publishing of a memoir of Yogi Bhajan's secretary, who was emotionally, physically, and sexually abused by the founder of Kundalini Yoga for over 20 years. I had seemed to sense that despite its transformative power, there was something insidious about Kundalini, and now I know why. I'm grateful I was able to disentangle myself from what in many ways would have been outed to be a dangerous cult before I ended up investing any more time or money into it. And now that the founder has been revealed to be a charlatan who has made up most of the poses and meditations as well as victimized tens of women in his employ and further earned the amnesty of Sikhs all over the world, who saw white people like myself donning turbans and doing kundalini classes as egregious cultural appropriation. I'm left with wondering what it is that I can take from this practice and why it was so powerful in that time in my life. I've been asking myself that question a lot in the wake of this and also learning about other yoga gurus who have turned out to be very problematic. See Bikram and Anna Forrest. Where is the lotus amidst all this mud? Where is the true wisdom in the practice that has been so transformative that I feel and experience and what needs to be cast aside because of the abusive and predatory gurus that cause so much harm to their followers? For me, it's an important question to keep in the forefront of my mind as I proceed with my aspiration to teach yoga, bring it into my own practice. Striking a balance between what ancient spiritual wisdom is inherent in the practice as well as the modern evolutions that are necessary to to make it more accessible and available to anyone who wants this amazing technology and to find the lotus through the mud. Thank you for listening to this episode of Who's in Bloom and thank you for being a supporter of the Science Witch Podcast Project. This will be the final episode of the season of Who's in Bloom as we move into the fallow time of the year. Next season, we will feature some of the flowers I missed getting to finish for this season of the podcast, including clematis, passion flower, violet, and skunk cabbage. If there's a particular flower that you haven't gotten to hear about and would like to see featured on this next season, please let us know either on Patreon or via email. 
Stay tuned for more bonus content from the Science Witch Podcast, including more episodes of Deity Deep Dives. And as I mentioned before earlier in the episode, an upcoming episode featuring Matthew Rimsky from the Conspirituality Podcast on our main RSS feed. Until next time, don't forget to stop, adore, and also thank the flowers. (laughs) 